they have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And I want you to pay particular attention to verse 12, and I want you to kind of take note of it. That's where the sermon's going to end this morning, is in Psalm 2, verse 12. But let's talk about who Jesus is. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Each of the Gospels has an incredible account of Jesus, Jesus as he enters the city of Jerusalem. If you look at the calendar, you know Easter's next Sunday, which means today is Palm Sunday. And I guess growing up as a kid, we didn't pay too much attention to the liturgical calendar, except for Easter Sunday, because my grandma would have us over to hunt Easter eggs in her backyard. Or we would have candy at church or some kind of thing like that. We didn't pay attention to to the liturgical calendar. But it's only when you get older you start thinking about things more. And today's Palm Sunday, which means this week coming up is what they call Passion Week, Monday through Friday. The week when Jesus demonstrates his passionate devotion to the purpose of God, which is his death on the cross for sinners. This is the culmination of why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to save sinners. And as our brother Paul would say, to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am chief. I wonder if that's how you feel about yourself. Do you feel like you are the chiefest of sinners? You may not right now, but sometimes you do feel like you're the chiefest of sinners. But this is Palm Sunday. Jesus is going to die later on in the week. But on this Sunday, he's the king. And each of the Gospels holds this account of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem. And this event, his entrance into the city, is the climax, in my opinion, of three years of ministry in the region. He's kind of built up to this point. Jesus has been teaching and preaching. He's been exposing the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of his day. He's been been exposing errors. He's been healing the sick and raising the dead. And he's been doing for three years... The kind of things that you would expect a God to do. This is worth thinking about. Jesus was a man. Looked like a man, talked like a man, acted like a man, smelt like a man. But he was doing things that only a God would do. A God would do. If a man claimed to be God, Jesus was doing the things that you would expect a guy who claimed to be God would be doing. He's doing incredible things. Jesus knows what people are thinking. He knows their minds. He knows their thoughts. He knows their secret questions. Have you ever been talking to somebody and they say something you've just been thinking? You're like, did I say that out loud? Because you're thinking about it so strongly. Jesus knows all thoughts. He reads people's minds. He knows the sincerity of their faith. He knows everything. Jesus comes and he takes people who have twisted arms and hands and legs and he makes those limbs right again. He delivers people from evil spirits. He makes blind people to see. Not people who are partially blind or mostly blind, but people who are actually blind. He raises the dead. 
He makes he takes limited resources like a little guy's lunch, you know, a few loaves and a few fishes. And he prays over them and then makes those loaves become sufficient enough to feed thousands of people. It just keeps on going. He makes limited resources to become unlimited. And then he walks on water. (laughs) C.S. Lewis in his book on miracles says that Jesus lived in a different dimension than we did. He lived in all dimensions at one time. So when Jesus sees water, he walks on it. But you and I, we can't walk on water. But Jesus does. He does all these things. He extends water walking power even to Peter. And says, Peter, if you want to come out here, you walk on the water too. What power, what divine manifestations we see in Jesus. And his first miracle, of course, is that miracle in John 2 where he turns water to wine. What a a, a guy. What an amazing person. Jesus has no equal. Not in power. Not in knowledge. Remember the Pharisees? They said, how can this guy be so smart when he ain't been to college? How can he be so smart when he hasn't had formal education? And it wasn't because Jesus was homeschooled or home educated either. It was because he was endued with knowledge because he was the God man. Jesus. And Jesus, with all this knowledge and power, he conducts this miracle-working ministry. He conducts it without any cost to any person. He never takes up an offering. He never says, send money to my uh, office. He, He does it without raising funds, and he does it without fear. He does it everywhere. He goes to any place and does what he wants. He does what he wants. That's what a God does. That's what a sovereign does. The work and power of Christ have no limits. And now, on Palm Sunday, after thousands of actions and hundreds of hours of teaching, Jesus comes to Jerusalem and the people, they erupt into praise. Why do they see him on this day and start going crazy with praise? Because he comes in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse number 9, where it says, O Zion, your king cometh, riding on the foal or the colt of a donkey. He's going to come with the mother, but he's going to be riding on the donkey. Now, that's a strange thing to behold. Usually, if you see see somebody riding a horse or riding a donkey or something like that or a mule, they're going to be riding the big one, not the little one. But Jesus comes in this symbolic gesture. And the people, they see this and they realize this guy who we've heard about, this person has been doing the miracles. This is he. This is the king. This is Zechariah 9.9. I'll read it for you. Thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem for the Passover, the people see him and it clicks. Have you ever had that moment where it just all clicked? You realize, yes, that's how, that's how it's supposed to work. That's, what it's supposed, that's how it's supposed to take place. It just all makes sense all at once. The people see it, and this is what happens. They see him who they have heard of because of the miracles. They see him actually in front of them, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, and they erupt in praise and adulation. If, let's, let's read a short portion of that. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 8 to 11. Matthew 21. 8 to 11. 
Verse 8. A very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and followed, crying, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus comes into the city. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have the same basic sentiment. This is what happens when Jesus comes in. I want you to notice several headings. I'm not going to tell you how many they are, but there are several of them. Notice the treatment that Jesus receives. They pave his path with palm leaves and with their own clothing. When I was a kid, I told my dad I I liked this girl, right? And my dad said, fine. And so... It was raining one day, and he said, why don't you take off your coat and throw it on the ground over the mud puddles? That way she can walk on it. Because my dad said that's what, that's what, that was good manners back in the day. And all I could think about was, this is my favorite coat. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. I've never taken off my clothes or my coat and laid it on the ground for somebody to walk on. Never have, never crossed my mind. But these people are so overcome They're so stirred with worship and appreciation and they know someone special is here that they throw their own clothing on the ground so that the king has a red carpet treatment that day. They're honoring him in a public and personal way. This is big time honor. This is presidential level stuff. This is royal stuff. This is how you treat the king. That's the treatment. And then there's the entourage. The people, the Bible says, they go before him shouting, the king is coming. They come come behind him saying, the king is coming. This is not just a a 60-person honor guard, or this is a multitude. Have you ever wondered how many people make up a multitude? I googled it. Here's what Google said. A great number of people. (laughs) A lot of people have come, and they're there, and they're saying, this is the one. And this gets the attention of the city. The people who've come to visit, the people who are in the city for the Passover, this is a big deal. The Passover was kind of a global holiday for the Jews. People coming from all over the world, all over the region, you might say. Who is this guy? But notice what the people are saying is a proclamation. All the cross-references... All the cross-referencers and commentators say they're quoting Psalms 118, verse 26, which says this, that the king will come and the people will say, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest. All the gospel accounts say the same thing. This is the proclamation of the people. Now, there are slight variations, slight variations. Mark says something. A little bit different than Matthew. Luke says something a little bit different than Matthew and Mark. Luke actually says the people were shouting, Blessed be the king that comes in the name of the Lord. John 12, 13, same story. Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, this is not what the followers of Jesus are saying. This is not what the the disciples are saying. This is what everybody is saying. 
the whole multitude, they're all saying, this is him. Messiah has come. This is the king of glory. This is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is he. The people, they know this man is the promised one. They can recognize it. Remember Nicodemus in John 3 says, we know you're come from God because nobody could talk like you or do what you do except he came from God. They know this guy is abnormal, exceptional. The people see this and they say, he's the king. The city asks the question. They say, who is this? And the the proclaimers, they say, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. The Pharisees, they come and they say, Jesus, make these people be quiet. Don't let them, tell them to stop. This is wrong. But here's what Jesus says today. He says something fascinating. He says, if I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to shout. This is something very exciting. If I tell them to be quiet, the rocks are going to talk. You know what the Pharisees said? Okay. Because <laughs> they didn't want the rocks to talk. <laughs> they don't want any talking rocks. You know why they don't want talking rocks? Because in the Old Testament, Moses spoke to the rock. And what came out of that rock? Water. They don't want the rocks to talk. Who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? He is the eternal, the eternal king. The king of glory. The king of glory. How does a king act? When a king comes to town, how's he going to act? Well, you can expect a king to do whatever he wants to do. Does a king ask for permission? Does a king say, may I? Does he say, can I? No, a king says, this is what I'm going to do. A king doesn't even think about others. You say, well, you say, yeah, it's because all kings are stuck up and rude. No, it's because they know their, they know their position in, in the world. They know who they are. Just like every day when you get up, who's the king of your body every day? It's your head. And every day your head doesn't send a message down to your toes and say, remember who I'm on top. You're on the bottom. It, does, it just takes position. It takes control. And this is what Jesus does. How does a king act? After Jesus comes into the city, he starts to do some things. And I want to talk about those for just a few minutes. The first thing Jesus does is he goes down to the temple and he cleans it up. You see, they were using God's house, the place that was supposed to be where they worshiped God, as a place for merchandise. You could say it was a place where people that people were using for their own personal benefit, not to worship God. My friends, we need to remember that. The church, when the congregation of the Lord meets together, it's not for our own personal benefit. We do get something out of it, but it's for the worship of God. It's not about you or about me. It's not even really about our personal comfort, although we do a lot of things to make ourselves comfortable. I mean, summertime is coming, right? And we're glad the AC will... Lord willing, work. <laughs> we like padded pews. We, we like water. But it's not about all those things. It's about worshiping God. That's why in these other countries, 
They worship God under trees and under, under, uh, under pavilions, worshiping God. Jesus comes into the temple and he drives out all the money changers. He drives out everybody there who's seeking their own personal gain. He's he's there and drives out all the people who are just there to make themselves happy instead of there to worship God. He drives them out. He doesn't ask permission. He says, you've made my house, my father's house, a den of thieves. And he cleans it out. And then Jesus, he reclaims the temple because as soon as he cast out the money changers, the greedy people. The people who are in it for their own personal welfare. After he drives them out, he changes the whole tenor of the temple. And what you read in Matthew 21, verse 14, is that as soon as all the money changers are out of there, guess who shows up? The lame, the sick, and the diseased. Because now the church, now the church can be the place that helps people. When I say church, the temple. Now it can be the place. Now people can come with their disfigured bodies. Now they can come in the filth of their infirmity. Now they can come and be cleansed and healed. And the Bible says he healed them there. Before, the temple was symbolically connected to merchandise, money changing, buying and selling, making deals. But now it's been corrected. He reclaims the temple for sacred use. This is a place of healing. It's a place of healing. This is what Christian churches are supposed to be, right? Places where sinners come and hear the gospel. It's a place where the hopeless come and get some hope. It's a place where the rotten, filthy, defiled sinners of this world come and are cleansed in the life-giving blood of Jesus. It's a place where Christians who have really messed up their whole life by making bad decisions come and find people who say, you really dropped the ball, but we still love you. Jesus said, John 6, 37, I'll in no wise cast you out. This is what Christian churches are supposed to be, a place for the healing of the nations. Now let's shift gears a hair, all right? He looked at the the temple and cleaned it up. And then in Matthew 23, skipping ahead a little bit, he looks at the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem that had just been worshiping him, honoring him, he looks at them in Matthew 23, 37 to 39. He weeps. Let's listen to these words. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. Oh, these are the words of Christ. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall, you shall not, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. When I first read that this week, I thought, they already said that. They already said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, are, they just got done saying that. It's because it was external. 
Jesus looks at this city and he weeps over the city of Jerusalem because within a few days, these people who have welcomed him with open arms, with the clothes off their back, these same people who have said, Behold, the king! These same people are going to be saying, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He knows that the people who praised him are going to become the people who persecute him and reject him and consent to his very death. He knows what they will do. And he knows what they're going to face because of it. The Jewish nation rejects him. And, because, and for their rejection, they're going to face, they did face, have faced, and continue to face incredible judgments. Incredible judgments. He knows what they will do. He knows what they're going to face for it. See, they're going to kill him. They're going to kill the king. And they're going to get by with it for 37 years. For 37 years, they're going to, they've killed their king. They've killed the Messiah. They've killed the Son of God. He's, he rises from the dead, goes back to heaven. He's victorious over it all, but they still killed him. And they got by with it for 37 years. In 70 AD, now Jesus is looking forward. He's in 33 AD, give or take. He's looking forward. He knows what's coming. He knows that in 70 AD, the most dreadful wholesale slaughter of the Jews that's ever taken place is going to be carried out by Titus Vespucian when they come in there and destroy the city. He knows that the temple that he has just cleansed, he knows that Titus is going to go into that place and sacrifice a hog on the holy place. The abomination of desolation is going to come in. He's going to do it. Jesus knows these things are coming. And he weeps. In chapter 24, Jesus tells them what's going to happen. Look at verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus goes out of the temple. The disciples come to him to say, look at this great place. We're still under construction at the time. And Jesus says, see all these things? There's not going to be one stone left here. They're all going to be thrown down. And he goes into the Olivet Discourse. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows what they're going to do to him. And he knows what's going to happen. He knows they're going to reject him. And how does a king feel when he's rejected? How do you feel when you're rejected? He's sad. <laughs> he's sad. It hurts him. I would have taken you in. I would have gathered you, but you wouldn't come to me. I came down here from heaven. I was born of a virgin. I lived a holy life, a sinless life. I only did good while I was here. I suffered all the indignities of being human. I've sweated and toiled. I've taught. I would have gathered you. I've gathered other people. He's come with open arms. Jesus is always seen with open arms. But what do they do, they say? They're excited about it. But they reject him. I want to leave you with these three things, okay? First of all, being excited about Christ does not mean that you are a Christian and is not salvation. 
You can be really wound up and excited and thrilled about the things of God and not be a Christian. Excitement wears off, doesn't it? New job tomorrow. New boss. (laughs) All going to be new. And you're going to be real good for the 90-day probationary period, right? (laughs) But then you're going to start seeing the, the chinks in the armor. You're going to realize that, you know, they're not paying you what you ought to be paid or maybe the insurance plan is not as good as they promised. It's going to wear off. Excitement's going to wear off. I heard a guy in Kansas say one time that when excitement ends, when excitement fades, character kicks in. (laughs) You've got to keep after it. You can be here and be really excited about Jesus. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. doesn't mean you're a Christian. Faith in Christ means you're a Christian. And I don't mean way back there in in, in the way deep, far past where you put your faith in Christ. I mean the kind of ongoing daily faith where every day your confidence for the future, that your hope rests in Christ and nothing else. I've been a Christian since I was a teenager. And with every passing day, my faith is in Christ. I have more faith in Christ today than I had in 1993 when I became a Christian. A lot more faith. My knowledge of him has only grown. And my knowledge of myself also only growing. And I know that really I am a real bad sinner. But he's a real great savior. When I was, when I was 15, I didn't really comprehend. I put my faith in him. But that faith has just been growing and growing. Greater confidence. And don't get me wrong. I was excited to become a Christian. But I had been excited about other stuff, too. When I was a teenager, we went, I was, wasn't a teenager. I was probably about 12. My mom, she's, she was hurrying around the house. She said, get, get, get your church clothes on. I said, why? It ain't Sunday and it ain't Wednesday. She said, get your church clothes on. We're going, we're going up here to Northern Virginia to hear a preacher preach. And I was like, I don't want to go. Can I stay home? You ever said to your mom and dad, can I stay home? And, no, you got to go. And I said, why should I go? We're going to go hear, hear Harold Clayton preach. You ever heard Harold Clayton, Brother Chris? You ever heard his sermon? His famous sermon, the rabbit, the tortoise and the hare, where he would talk about the race of the rabbit and he would act it out. He would run around the stage like, like a hare and he would crawl like a tortoise. And man, it was, it was the most dramatic thing I can, I've ever seen in preaching. I have no idea what it had to do with the Bible or Jesus, but I can remember the tortoise and the hare big time. I was excited, but I wasn't a Christian. That's the first thing. Excitement about Christ is not salvation. Number two, indifference and rejection of Christ is not salvation either. You may reject Christ and feel nothing for him for your whole life. But that doesn't mean that you've you've saved yourself from Christian hell. Because hell's real. Heaven's real. God's real. Sin's real. Jesus is real. And you can say, well, I just got to deprogram my mind. I'm just going to be indifferent. I'm going to reject this. And then I don't have to worry about this hell business. That's not going to save you. You can reject Jesus and feel just great about it for 37 years maybe. 
like those Jews in Jerusalem who killed Jesus. 37 years, they rejected him. And then the second time they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the, that, I take that to mean the prayer of the people in Jerusalem as they're perishing. They were wishing he would come and save them, but he's not going to do it. The door of salvation was closed. And the third thing I want to say to you is, right now, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Bow before Him. Call out to Him. Say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't look to anything but Christ for salvation. Don't look to family. Don't look to baptism or church affiliation. Look to Jesus. Say what the publican said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Confess to him your guilt. Now let's go back to where we started. Psalm 2, verse 12. The heathen are raging. The kings of the earth set themselves in array against the Lord and against his anointed, his son. They say, let us break God's authority over us in verse 3. But verse 4 says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. That means He'll have them in ridicule. God is not too worried about it. When I was a kid, my dad, when I, we'd wrestle and stuff, and he would just laugh at me. I'd try to get him, you know, try to punch him or, or wrestle him down the ground. He'd just laugh at me. Ha, 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 ha. He'd put his hand, you know, on my head, and I'd be ha, ha, doing that. Or he'd put one hand behind his back and say, come on, come on. I mean, he wasn't worried about me at all. The Lord will have them in ridicule. He shall, then shall he speak in them, verse 5, in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. He tells them what's going to happen. But in verse 12, the God who's not going to, the God who's going to judge and hold folks accountable, he says in verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Andrew Fuller said this might be the greatest passage in the Bible because God is saying judgment is coming. But if you'll kiss the sun, if you'll submit to the sun, you will escape the wrath to come. Kiss the sun while you can. Call upon Christ. Look, and this idea of kissing the sun here is symbolic of submission. Symbolic of saying, yes. You're, you're the master. If you were, you know, we, we live in a, a pretty good time. You can watch these movies and see kings, you know, and somebody comes to see the king, and the king gives his hand, and what do people do? They kiss his ring. And they're saying, you're the king. I submit to you. And what, what he's saying here is kiss the son. Embrace Christ while you can. The last sentence of verse 12. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. This word blessed could be translated happy. You could think of it as happy. Happy are all they that put their trust in him. The people of Jerusalem, Jesus came in fulfillment of the prophecy, rides into town, and they're excited, they're thrilled. But they didn't put their trust in him. They didn't call upon him. They didn't take him as their Lord and Savior. They didn't have him as their king. My friends, you can have him as your king right now. You can have him as your king this very moment. 
But there's a voice in the back of your head that says, you don't need him as your king. You're your own king. You're your own boss. You don't, you don't need him. That's the voice of Satan saying, don't. And that other voice is the voice of the Savior. Remember Paul said, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. There's another voice that's saying, be reconciled to him. One voice is promising you false hope, and one voice is offering you true hope. Trust in Christ now. Kiss the Son before you perish in the way. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Let's pray together, then we'll sing a hymn, all right? Heavenly Father, we pray.